Hello, and welcome to the AUA plenary session uh, on stress incontinence, a guidelines-based discussion. It's my distinct pleasure and privilege to moderate a really wonderful panel who I'm going to introduce to you right now. Uh, Dr. Chris Gomez from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dr. Ann Gormley from Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Dr. Chris Winters in Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana from LSU. And then myself from Seattle, Washington. So stress incontinence is a really prevalent problem. It affects as many as 49% of patients or, or people in the general population, depending on what population you look at. Now with the stress incontinence guidelines that were last um, published in 2017, we actually divided the patients up into index versus non-index patients. And for the sake of this discussion, please keep that in mind. Um, index patients are really the straightforward patients who have stress-predominant urinary incontinence. They can have an urge component, but it has to be stress-predominant, um, demonstrable on physical examination, with generally no prior surgery and no large pelvic prolapse. And pretty much everybody else is a non-index patient. So if you think of it that way, it's pretty easy to put them in those buckets. Now, the guidelines are really structured to cover both evalu uh, evaluation, um, workup, the patient counseling, the various treatment options that are available, and some special cases. And with this case-based discussion, we hope to engage you and have you start thinking about how you can apply the stress incontinence guidelines in a really practical fashion. So with that, I'm going to introduce Dr. Ann Gormley to present the first case. Uh, excuse me, before that, Dr. Gormley is going to be presenting the index patient. Um, Dr. Gomez will be treating, teach, uh, excuse me, presenting the patient who is uh, recurrent or failed sling, so recurrent stress incontinence after a procedure. Um, I will be talking about high-grade prolapse, and then Dr. Winters will present the mixed urinary incontinence patient. So once again, with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ann Gormley. Thank you, Kathleen. Well, it's a real honor to be here today. I'm going to be talking about the index case. The first case I'd like to present is Miss DR. She's a 58-year-old G1P1 who was referred to me with stress incontinence for five years. She says she has done Kegels all of the time and they no longer help. She describes stress-predominant incontinence with leakage with coughing, laughing, sneezing, lifting, straining, bending, and she says she can't exercise. She will occasionally have some urgency on her way to the toilet if she's held for too long. Her voiding habits are pretty good. She voids about every two hours during the day. She gets up twice at night and she wears three incontinence pads per day. She's postmenopausal and uses primary cream externally and she's otherwise healthy with no significant past history. On exam, she's a fit, healthy appearing woman. And on pelvic exam, there's bladder neck mobility with no significant pelvic organ prolapse. And she does leak with both a cough and a valsalva. Her urinalysis is negative and her post-void residual with a bladder scanner is 24 to 30 mLs. So the question is, is, and I'll give this to Kathleen, does this woman need additional testing? Well, so this is a very interesting patient, Dr. Gormley, and you're right, this is really the index patient, a classic index patient. Though she does have a little bit of urgency from time to time, she describes that her symptoms are stress predominant. The fact that you're able to actually demonstrate the stress incontinence really, I mean, you've got your diagnosis confirmed there. And I always think about your dynamics as something that if it's not going to change your road, if you're not going to change what you do for the patient, you don't have any questions that are unanswered or anything you need to confirm, then you really don't need to have your dynamics. So I wouldn't do that on her. So um, 
cystoscopy was not indicated. She um, had a negative urinalysis. Um, I thought that this woman didn't need urodynamics because stress was clearly demonstrated. She was counseled for her options and we did talk about her urge. And she actually decided first that she would try some treatment for her urge. So she tried an anti-muscarinic and this was well tolerated and particularly her frequency improved. She now wants treatment for stress incontinence. Um, again, does she need urodynamics? And I think we sort of already covered that she needs urodynamics if it would change one's treatment. So when I discussed the surgical options with this woman, both a retropubic and an obturator sling, as well as a fascial sling, um, she'd already done pelvic muscle exercises, she elected to have a retropubic midurethral sling. And this was done uneventfully. She has been seen in follow-up both at four weeks and at six months. She is no longer on any anti-muscarinics. She has no stress incontinence, no urgency incontinence. And objectively, she doesn't leak anymore when you examine her and have her cough or Valsalva. Her PVR has remained low and she has a negative urinalysis. So this is the very straightforward index patient who, in my mind, this woman would probably do reasonably well no matter what procedure you do on her. So I'd like to present another case that's a little bit more of a complicated, but still in some ways an index case. This is a 46-year-old perimenopausal woman who I initially saw back in 2005. She'd had stress incontinence for four years. She says she does 100 or more kegels a day. And she had a past history elsewhere of a radiofrequency ablation to her pelvic floor. And she said this did absolutely nothing for her. She also describes stress incontinence with really all stress maneuvers. She has no urgency incontinence, um, and she wears four incontinence pads per day. She voids every hour, and she gets up once at night. On physical exam, she's a well-looking woman. She's very fit. I will say not all my women are very fit, but these two were. Um, this woman has good pelvic floor strength. She does have bladder neck mobility and a small rectocele. She is incontinent when she coughs on exam, but not with a Valsalva. Her post-void residual was 200 with a bladder scanner. She'd like her problem fixed. And the question is, does this woman need urodynamics? So Dr. Kabashi, what do you think about this woman? Now, um, she is a little bit different because she's got some other things going on, not the least of which is this baseline incomplete bladder emptying. So I think that urodynamics would be helpful just to see how she voids, see what her bladder capacity is and her sensation, but see how she voids. If she really has consistently elevated post-void residual, that's going to come into the counseling a little bit for her um, because if you do a sling on her, you can exacerbate that um, incomplete emptying and retention. So I, I definitely would just to get a little more information on her. And that's exactly what I did. So she actually had zero PVR when she came in for her urodynamics. She voided to completion also during the test with a normal pressure flow. Her bladder was stable and she has a Valsalva leak point pressure of 82 at 150. I went through her options for surgery with her. Um, she'd had a colleague who'd had a mesh complication and she was pretty adamant that under no circumstances would she have mesh. So she was considering a fascial sling, uh, but then had all sorts of things go on in her life and took seven years to come back. She says she's a little worse in that she wears a couple more pads a day, and she still is very adamant that she only wants to have a fascial sling. So the question is, is do I need to repeat the urodynamics? 
I guess I would say with her, as long as her symptoms have remained the same insofar as character is concerned, if she doesn't have new onset of difficulty emptying, I mean, you can check, you can check her PVR again, um, but no more urgency, et cetera, or no um, you know, new onset of urgency, then I think you could probably go with the urodynamics that you have arguably. And that's exactly what I did because I thought there was going to be nothing on the your a new urodynamics that would make me do anything differently because she already wanted a fascial sling. Might've been different had she been thinking all along of having an obturator sling. I might've so said, well, let's see how worse she really is. Um, she had an outpatient uh, pubovaginal sling and did very well and was seen in follow-up at six weeks and eight months with no objective or subjective incontinence um, and a minimal PVR and a negative UA. Perfect. It's now my privilege to introduce Dr. Chris Gomez from Brazil, um, and he will present the next case and discuss it with Dr. Winters. Thanks, Kathleen, very much. It's a great honor to be part of this panel today and present this next case. So this patient is a 57-year-old woman. She complains of stress, urinary incontinence for two years. She's wearing three to four pads a day. She has no urgency or frequency, has a good flow, a sense of complete emptying. She has no urinary tract infections. She did try and fail uh, OAB medications, but had minor improvement with physical therapy. She's sexually inactive. She's very embarrassed with her bladder problems. She claims that she can't go to the gym. She's afraid people will notice urine smell. She can't have sexual intercourse. And she is saying that she is willing to undergo surgical treatment for this problem. And on her past medical history, she has no com comorbidities. She had an anti-incontinence surgery six years ago, which was a transobturator sling that improved her for a few years, but then she progressively worsened. Uh, her obstetric history is positive for three pregnancies and three vaginal deliveries. On physical exam, she has a body mass index of 23, a trophic vaginal mucosa. She has stress urinary incontinence with a minimally mobile urethra and a stage one cystocele. No mass, no suspicion of a urethral tick. She has normal perineal sensation and normal anal sphincter tone. And her voiding diary showed a frequency of eight to nine times a day, nocturia zero or one. She has a maximum voided volume of 400 mils. Usually she voids 200 mils and a 24 hour urine output of 15 to 1800 mils. And she did have many leaks per day. She brought some lab tests with a normal urinalysis, a negative urine culture, and a normal uh, fasting glucose, and also a normal post-void residue of only 20 milliliters. And in summary, this is a 57-year-old lady with stress incontinence, significantly bothered, failed a transobturator sling six years ago, has a minimally mobile urethra, and failed conservative therapy. So my question to Chris, Chris, can you help me here? Does she need additional evaluation? Yes, so clearly I think, uh, uh, Chris, that you're, you're not uh, presenting uh, what I would consider an index patient uh, um, by any stretch. And so she has certainly, uh, she's failed medication. Um, she's very, very bothered. Um, she also had a um, mesh sling, a transoperator tape. 
and she has minimal urethral mobility. So there are a number of uh, factors here uh, that suggest that she's not an index patient. And I do think she certainly would require further evaluation. In this patient, there's no doubt that I would do urodynamics to help me elucidate uh, what the cause of her incontinence is, and then also how she empties as well as stores uh, in this patient who's previously failed a sling. Given the fact that she's had a mesh sling, I think I would also recommend to do a cystoscopy, even though it's not recommended in all patients with stress incontinence. In this case, I would like to make sure that I don't encounter an intraluminal mesh uh, erosion into the urethra or the bladder uh, uh, at the time of surgery. Thank you very much, Chris. And, and exactly like that, we did perform uh, a cystoscopy and urodynamic tests in this patient. And the cystoscopy was normal. She had a normal uroflow as well with a voided volume of 350 milliliters, a maximum flow of 28 mLs per second, and a post-void residue of 17 mL. And on urodynamics, we confirmed pure stress urinary incontinence with an abdominal leak point pressure of 50 centimeters of water, no detrusor overactivity, and a bladder capacity of 350 milliliters. So in summary, she has a stress urinary incontinence. She's very bothered. She's willing to undergo surgical treatment. She failed a mid-urethral sling, she has a minimally mobile urethra, and urodynamics com uh, uh, confirms it's a pure stress incontinence with normal amping. So Chris, if you could help me again, which treatments can be offered to this patient and how would you counsel this patient in terms of success and complication rates? So I think in this case, there are several factors that would direct me a bit more specifically with all of the options that we have available to treat stress incontinence. I think the fact that she has a component of ISD uh, based on leak point pressures as well as minimal mobility uh, and then she's also had a transoperator tape sling. So given that, I would, I, would, I would certainly not recommend a repeat transoperator sling. And then I think when you have patients who have had uh, 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 signs of, of, of less mobility or intrinsic sphincter deficiency, probably the two procedures that rise to the top, if you will, would be a, a fascial pupil vaginal sling, as well as a retropubic mid-urethral sling, as far as a surgical intervention with a potential long-term effect at, at treating this condition. Any woman in this category can also be offered urethral bulking agents with the caveat that they need to understand that they may undergo um, repeat treatments and that the effect of this therapy certainly is not as long as the others. So I would, I would counsel this person as far as uh, uh, in those, oh, those scenarios, when looking at complications of each approach, I would think we will be uh, uh, specifically focus on the pubovaginal slings and the retrovaginal sling. I think it's fair to say that uh, both of these procedures have demonstrated efficacy in treating incompetence after a failed sling. Although I would say it's not quite as efficacious if I never operated on the patient in the first place or anyone did, but certainly they provide admirable results in reduced sling scenarios. If you look at the complications, one would argue uh, that the mid-urethral sling uh, is probably associated with less obstruction and less, uh, less potential storage uh, abnormalities. And so therefore, I think both options would be reasonable for the patient. And this patient with some degree of mobility who may not have a significant concern about mesh, as Ann had mentioned in the earlier patient, I do think a retrovaginal sling would be a very reasonable option for this patient, as well as a fascial sling. 
Thanks very much, Chris. And if the patient chooses a mediator sling, as Dr. Winters just said, uh, after failing a previous surgery, there's good evidence that a retropubic sling offers higher success rates than a transobturator sling as reported in this meta-analysis. So we did the retropubic sling for this lady and after six months, she's dry, she wears no pads, no urinary tract infections, pain or difficulty voiding. She resumes sexual life, is very, very happy and has a normal vaginal exam. So with this, we finished this case and I want to return it to Kathleen. Thank you. Okay, well, let's go on to the next case, which is high-grade prolapse. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful discussion. So case three is a 55-year-old G2P2 woman who has stress incontinence, of course, since that's our topic of conversation today. Um, what is the minimal evaluation per the guidelines for this patient? So I'll ask Dr. Gormley just to go through this. This is straight out of the guidelines. Thank you, Kathleen. So the minimal guidelines is are a detailed history, um, a physical exam, which must include a pelvic exam, an ability to demonstrate stress incontinence. And if one can't see stress incontinence with the patient in the lithotomy position, then you can certainly have the patient stand. One needs to do a urinalysis. And if the urinalysis is positive, you may need to do a urine culture. And then a post-void residual, ideally with a bladder scanner. Okay. And so as we've touched upon a couple of times for the index patient, you can omit uh, urodynamics and you can actually do, do or not do your dynamics in the non-index patient. So again, if you have a question you want to answer, that's why that's not part of the um, actual minimal evaluation. It's really a judgment call based upon the questions that you have as the clinician. So her history includes stress urinary incontinence with sneezing and exercise. She has occasional urgency, but no urgency incontinence. She describes some mild uh, hesitancy and a variable force of stream. She has also undergone a transvaginal hysterectomy. On pelvic examination, this is her pop cue. And then, so, you know, we'd want to concentrate really on, you know, the anterior and apical part of things, but I'll let Dr. Gormley maybe just go over this briefly. So this woman has um, anterior prolapse. She also has some uh, significant descent of her vault. Um, she has um, some posterior prolapse, but not as severe. Um, so, you know, this woman has significant pelvic organ prolapse and I think we need to be thinking about this when we're both working up her stress incontinence and also when we talk to her about how we're going to treat her. And so with her, we, you know, what's important also is to reduce the prolapse when you're looking to see what the urethral function is. So we didn't, we were not able to demonstrate stress urinary incontinence with or without reduction of the prolapse. So do we need to do additional workup on her, Dr. Gormley? Yeah, I think this woman really needs to have urodynamics. Um, and she needs the urodynamics for a number of reasons. First of all, she has significant prolapse. Um, and you ideally um, should check a Valsalva leak point pressure both with without reduction and with reduction. And how you reduce it can be done in a variety of ways. I would also do urodynamics in this woman because of her significant post-void residual. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily do a cystoscopy in this patient with a normal, with a negative urinalysis and not much else in her history, but I would definitely do urodynamics. Okay. 
So in this gal, the indications for urodynamics, as Dr. Gormley outlined so nicely, is the high-grade prolapse, um, the inability to confirm her stress urinary incontinence, the incomplete bladder emptying, and the fact that she had prior surgery. All of those things put her in the category of the non-index patients, um, which in and of itself doesn't require that you do urodynamics, but um, it can help answer some questions that might be important in the counseling and anticipation of what her outcomes might be. What are the indications for cystoscopy? Again, this is a bit of a judgment call for her. She has a little bit of an urgency component, but no urgency incontinence. She had a little bit of incomplete emptying, so you might want to see if there's anything um, intra intravesical or intraurethral, though she didn't have a sling. She had a prior hysterectomy. Um, and, you know, rule out intravesical pathology, but that's very much a judgment call. So I wouldn't say that there's a black and white answer to that. So her urodynamics showed a nice bladder capacity of 400 cc's, a stable bladder. She had normal sensation and stress urinary incontinence with reduction of the prolapse. Okay. Then with the pressure flow analysis, she um, had a slow flow of eight cc's per second with a maximal detrusor pressure, low detrusor pressure of three centimeters of water pressure, and was able to empty her bladder reasonably well with everything reduced on urodynamics. Consideration, so what if you were not able to, to demonstrate the stress urinary incontinence in this gal on your dynamics? And what would you do? So I think you always have to sort of look at how did you reduce her prolapse? First of all, you have to reduce the prolapse and then you have to ask yourself, how did you reduce it? And could you have potentially obstructed her urethra in whichever method you chose to reduce the prolapse? And the studies to date have shown that there isn't really much difference with what you use to reduce the prolapse, but you do want to make sure that you're not obstructing her urethra. And if you're not doing that, um, then the next thing to consider is, is the catheter obstructing her and you can remove that. Yes. So that's um, very much along the guidelines. If you look at the stress incontinence guidelines and the urodynamics guidelines, um, that's really very consistent with what we um, see in those guideline statements. So as far as treatment options are considered for her, what would her options be? You can do observation. Again, very similar to the overactive bladder guidelines, doing nothing is actually a very reasonable option as well. We can do something like a pessary. We could do physical therapy with or without an actual physical therapist. So they can do pelvic floor muscle exercises with or without a therapist. You could do prolapse repair with either a birch, a mid-urethral sling, or an autologous sling. So these are all options for the patients. Very important. Also, the guidelines really um, emphasize the importance of us uh, presenting them with all the options. So you might think that something one is better than the other for a patient, but you still need to you know, give them all the information uh, so that they can make the choices. So with that, I think I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Winters to talk about mixed incontinence, please. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for the honor of being part of this uh, panel. And I would also like to thank uh, Dr. Lynch and the entire AU organization for uh, the amazing uh, response that they've had uh, to this turbulent time and continues to provide us with all the plethora of educational activities that they've done. So thank you for that. So I wanted to review a, a case of uh, a, a, um, mixed incontinence and I wanted to present a case and I'll be doing that to Chris. So Chris, this is a 47 year old female who presents with the following symptoms. She has urinary urgency with leakage associated with a sudden sensation devoid and also leakage with exertion, predominantly exercise and cough. This is interrupting her ability to exercise. It's bothering her at work. She does note that the urgent stress components are fairly proportional. She's having no difficulty voiding, no incontinence interventions, 
and then there's no other uh, apparent comorbidities. Her exam could uh, suggest and demonstrate urethral hypermobility. She also has a supine stress uh, urine loss with cough. She has no prolapse uh, at a, uh, with the stage one being its greatest extent. She has a normal urinalysis, a residual of 28 cc's, and her I7 score is 12 and UDI6 is six, noting the urge and stress component are equal. So in this patient, uh, what would you consider the uh, options available to present to this patient right now at this point in time, Chris? Well, this patient has mixed urinary incontinence with no predominance of either the urge or the stress component. So since she did not receive any treatment for her condition, I think it's reasonable to offer conservative therapy with either behavioral therapy or pelvic floor muscle therapy and as well as medical therapy. And we could pick either an antimuscarinic agent or a beta tree agonist. So that's what was chosen by the patient. We discussed all the different options available to her at this time. And we elected to embark on a regimen of the first and second tier overactive bladder measures, as well as pelvic floor muscle training. So she was initiated on, on, on pelvic floor therapy. She was, given, she was instructed on time voids and fluid management and started on Mirabegron 50 milligrams per day. She came back about a month later. She said she was better. She wanted to give things more time. She felt better about her condition. However, she comes back about four months later. She's frustrated. Her urgent component has now gotten worse. She feels that she's still linking with her activity. She's actually bothered now more than she was, probably because the urge has gotten worse. So she's asking, what now? So Chris, of the following options that I'll, I'll present to you, how would you approach this patient now? Would you switch your anticholinergics? Would you consider combination therapy? Would you think about a workup right now? Would you just consider treating the stress with a midwithesling or other option, or go to third tier overactive bladder management? Or would you even do something else? What would your thoughts be? Yeah. Well, it will depend on a conversation with the patient and what she's willing to do. If she is not willing to undergo surgery at this time, I would offer an adjustment in her medical therapy, and possibly I would include some physical therapy as well. If she would consider surgical, uh, on the other hand, I would discuss the options and probably I would obtain a urodynamics before. So I think an important point that you're making is you're helping, you're giving the patient the options and actually allowing the patient to navigate her therapy. And for a patient like this, that is very, very sound advice uh, because that's, in all honesty, the best way that they'll stay involved in this treatment paradigm. So she was willing to do surgery because she's really becoming bothered. So uh, we elected to, as you alluded to, we did urodynamics and the, we felt that the indications were that the etiology of this condition was certainly not clear, that she had mixed incontinence, which was not stress predominant. She had failed medications. And if you look at the stress incontinence guidelines, both stress incontinence guideline two and six recommend additional evaluations and urodynamics for those with urge predominant incontinence or those uh, who are not indexed patients. So our patient underwent urodynamics, and in the interest of time, I'll give you the results. And it demonstrated a normal compliance with a normal bladder capacity and sensation without bladder activity. She did leak at 250 cc's with Valsalva at 76 and 84 centimeters of water. And she voided a completely unobstructed uh, with a normal contractility of her bladder, suggesting once again, uh, pure, if you will, stress urinary incontinence. So in this patient, of the following treatment options that we know of for stress incontinence as per the guidelines, do you think one is better than the other here? 
Well, Chris, uh, I don't think there is evidence that having mixed incontinence should change the way we select surgical therapy for all patients. So in this case, my preference, but this is very personal, is for a transobturator sling. Okay, so that's very reasonable. So in the category of a midurethral sling, one could say potentially approaching it in the form of a midurethral sling, transobturator for the, re the other reasons that it might actually have some benefit in a patient with mixed incontinence. So what would you ask or what would you say about the significance of the lack of PO uh, or OEB on the urodynamics? What would you counsel regarding that? Well, having OEB symptoms is a risk factor for surgical failure due to a higher risk of persisting uh, OAB symptoms in the post-operative time. So I think even if it doesn't show in your dynamics, it is a risk factor. So this patient must be counseled that up to 25% of the patients will need further treatment after surgery because of OAB symptoms. So she was counseled and she actually chose to do a retropubic midurethral sling because of her exercise and the fear of groin pain. So she did have a retropubic midurethral sling as, as we, we counseled her in both approaches. And, and, and about, about a month later, she came back, she was healed, voiding well and no pain and very improved. I did wanna mention that she still required to take some Meribegron for some of the urgency. And I'll close this case with a 10 month follow-up on this patient demonstrating that she's still extremely satisfied, does require uh, Meribegron uh, for a very minimal degree of urgency, but overall is very satisfied. So Kathleen, I'll close this case and turn it back to you in summary. Thank you so much. That was a really wonderful discussion with wonderful colleagues. So thank you so much for all of you for the excellent work in presenting this. I hope for the audience that this was able to provide you some practical application of the guidelines. Reading the guidelines just straight through can be a little bit dry, admittedly, but it is very applicable. And I hope these cases were able to demonstrate that for you. Thank you again to the AUA for this wonderful opportunity.